okay, we've hired somebody. We have our own Kevin Feige, i.e., you know, the president of Marvel and the guy who's guided Marvel to be Marvel. And they've said this multiple times and it's never worked. And it hasn't worked for a variety of reasons, which include a lack of ability to commit and follow through, a lack of willingness to plan and other things. You know, some stuff they've tried, audiences just haven't responded to. And it's like, you can't force it if people aren't showing up. This is the Box Office Podcast. I'm Rebecca Polly, Deputy Editor of Box Office Pro, the pulse of theatrical exhibition since 1920. Joined here today by Russ Fisher of Box Office Studios. Russ, how you doing? Great. Great. I finally saw Avatar this weekend. Only two months late. Well, you're part of that long, uh, that long lead tale we've been talking about. How'd you like it? Loved it. Great time. <laughs> Fantastic. You know, my wife and I saw it. We came out, you know, we left. It's long, mm. obviously, but we left and I was like, yeah, that was awesome. I would see it again in a second. And she was like, yes, absolutely. Um, How'd you see it? Like IMAX, yeah. 3D? What was your... IMAX 3D oh, okay. at AMC just because it was, you know, I, I'd really targeted seeing it at Dolby, one of the Dolby rooms at AMC, of which there are only a couple around me. And I think those got snapped up by Knock at the Cabin this weekend. So oh, that's too bad. Dolby was no longer an option. And then, you know, parenting, et cetera, it just comes down to what works time-wise. And the IMAX 3D was the best screen at the best time for us. So did that, and it was great, yeah. Loved it. Had a fantastic time. Well, on our feature segment this week, you and our editorial director, Daniel Aria, who is, he's not here with us recording today because he is down in Dallas for the Dining Summit, but you had a quite a, an in-depth conversation about the movies of 1997 in honor of this weekend's Titanic release. I actually haven't listened to that conversation yet. I'm going to assume you spent an hour of it talking about Romy and Michelle's high school reunion. Because that's the only movie from 1997 that matters. Didn't come up. Sorry. But before we get to that conversation on 1997, uh, we're going to unpack some news here, starting with the announcement this morning, that being uh, Monday morning, February 6th, that AMC is experimenting with dynamic pricing. Or rather, to rephrase that, again, they they have been experimenting with dynamic pricing, and they have launched a new sort of tier program where the seats kind of at the center, the primo seats are going to cost a premium surcharge on top of the normal ticket prices. The front row and some ADA seats are going to be lower in price. And then everything else is just going to be like normal. What are your thoughts on this? I mean, because I definitely have thoughts, not as someone who reports on this industry, but as a moviegoer who likes saving money. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I see where they're going with it. I don't really like it. I think that the flat pricing of movies has always been one of the things that makes movies really appealing. It's democratizing. You know, it is. And, you know, but I guess as we have shifted towards an entirely assigned seat movie going experience, by and large, that I can see why companies are thinking like, well, okay, the next step is to charge more for certain types of seats. And it's just like, but it's also to me, it's a tacit admission that some of the seats in the auditorium suck. If you're going to be charging me less to sit in them than in other seats, like, I don't know, fix that, make those seats better. They did clarify on their FAQ on the website, I think, like you can still see all the screens from all the seats. I mean, I don't know. I, it's only rolled out to a few theaters so far. And I, uh, you know, poked around on their website and found a seating chart for a Magic Mike's Last Dance screening this weekend where it applies. And it was very, it was a lot fewer cheaper seats than more expensive seats. That ratio yeah. is not not looking that great to me. But I do agree that by and large, for a standard, for non-PLF experience. By and large, most seats in theaters these days are good. Your very front rows are not great. Even those are better than they were. But they're not, it's not like they're two feet away from the screen anymore like they used to be. Like Yeah, generally speaking, they're much better. And it really is in that PLF experience where I do find myself being a stickler about where I want to sit. You know, anything IMAX, if you're at an IMAX screening, there is absolutely a sweet spot for IMAX. There's just no question. It's better if you're on axis. It's better if you're really mid-positioned height-wise. It's just 
science. Honestly, with a lot of other screens, I kind of prioritize access. I want to be able to get in and out if I want. So I mean, with the IMAX, you like those seats and now you're going to be paying more for them unless you're a member of their subscription program and then it's no extra surcharge, of course. Yeah. it's. I think ultimately the thing is, is it's getting more and more complicated. Like you say, are you part of a loyalty program? Which tier of that program are you part of? How does that affect what surcharges you're paying? How does that affect your pricing overall? And to the consumer who's going twice or four times a year rather than two or four times a month, that pricing gets confusing really fast. Is it going to be confusing enough to be frustrating and consequently alienating? Obviously, AMC doesn't think so, or they're hoping no, but I, you know, I don't know. Russ, in other news, there was a, mainly the reason I was curious to talk to you today is I know there's been a ton of shakeup regarding James Gunn regarding what the heck is going on with the DC universe. And I was thinking, okay, like, I'm just going to wait for Russ to explain that to me. (laughs) So yeah, what are we looking at here? So quick background. Last year, James Gunn, filmmaker, writer, producer, director, and Peter Safran, producer, were hired to basically run DC Studios for Warner Brothers. Gunn is the creative side. Safran is the business side, although one gets the sense that they're working you know, pretty closely together and that maybe that's a a division on paper more than it is in practice. I mean, Gunn's a producer on lots of movies. I mean, he he seems like he would have that business head too. Yeah. And Gunn started small, you know, he started working for Troma to the degree where when he got hired for Guardians by Marvel, it was like, oh, interesting. But then he turned Guardians into a hit, a movie that I think a lot of people had reason to think was going to bomb. I remember like a talking raccoon. How were they going to make that into something? A tree that that only says one line, you know, all of these things. And Guardians was huge. And Guardians, I think wasn't just huge. I think the Guardians movies are in the top tier of Marvel movies. I think they're consistently, even it's been years since the last full Guardians movie came out. The third one comes out in what, May of this year. They are some of Marvel's best movies. And so- And I think it's fair to say like they- set a different course for the MCU being as successful as that first one was. I mean, it was kind of a quote unquote universe shifting addition to the franchise. Yes. So these guys have been hired and now DC has said multiple, there've been like three times in the past where Warner brothers and DC have said, okay, we've hired somebody. We have our own Kevin Feige, IE, you know, the president of Marvel and the guy who's guided Marvel to be Marvel. And they've said this multiple times and it's never worked and it hasn't worked for a variety of reasons, which include a lack of ability to commit and follow through a lack of willingness to plan and other things, you know, some stuff they've tried audiences just haven't responded to. And it's like, you can't force it if people aren't showing up. So it felt very cart before the horse. Like Kevin Feige was not planning to do an extended universe when Iron Man came out. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So here we are now. James Gunn and Peter Safran are at DC. And essentially, the DC movies that were represented by Zack Snyder and everything that Zack Snyder set in motion are more or less ending. We have a couple still coming out. Shazam! Fury of the Gods, which is Shazam 2. That leads into The Flash. The Flash, which has been in development for a long time now and on which they have spent so much money that they can't possibly not release it. And then Aquaman, the subtitle of which I frankly can't recall. The Lost Kingdom? Yes, thank you. The Lost Kingdom, which based on my understanding is basically like an Aquaman buddy cop movie where Aquaman and Orm, his brother played by half brother played by Patrick Wilson, have to team up to stop somebody. And it's like, it sounds kind of like Aquaman lethal weapon sort of thing. That's the one of the three I'm looking forward to. The first movie was super fun. James Wan did a great job with it. Excited to see this one. But that is officially the end point of what was in DC. And Gunn and Safran have said some things about how they're willing to continue with some of the cast. You know, Henry Cavill is no longer playing Superman. Ben Affleck is no longer playing Batman. Is Gal Gadot going to continue to play Wonder Woman? We don't know. 
Same for Ezra Miller, same for Jason Momoa as Aquaman. There are a lot of questions that do not have answers. What we do have is a slate. So Gunn and Safran last week announced five movies and five HBO Max streaming shows. We have titles. In some cases, we have creative teams. In one case, we have a release date. So the one with the release date, July 11th, 2025, Superman Legacy. New Superman movie a new actor to be announced, Gunn writing. Gunn is very likely directing. I think it's maybe even been confirmed that Gunn is going to direct this now. And I think the best way to describe this is a quote from Peter Safran when they did this announcement, where they said that Superman is kindness in a world that thinks of kindness as old-fashioned, which is, to me, a big indicator that they are moving back towards a brighter, sunnier Superman than we've seen from the last couple of incarnations on the big screen. It'll be interesting to see James Gunn's take on that because he has a kind of a caustic sense of humor. His main characters tend to be jackasses, I think is fair to say. They do. So yeah. And so Gunn has posted a couple of things. He's been very explicit in several ways about what comics are going to be the root for, you know, or the inspirations for these new titles. For the Superman movie, he says that All-Star Superman, which was written by Grant Morrison and drawn by Frank Quitley and Jamie Grant, is going to be the source. And All-Star Superman, frankly, is awesome. I'm not a huge Superman fan. I've never been a big Superman fan. That run of stories is fantastic. And it's really beautiful in kind of showing it is like an iconic, optimistic Superman as like an avatar of good. It's not Boy Scout stuff. It's just optimistic. And it's like looking at, I don't know, we've seen from Brian Singer's Superman through Zack Snyder's Superman. It's been a darker version of the character. And I get that. There's a lot of reasons to explore that. But audiences haven't responded to that version as well as they might. And I think there's a lot of untapped potential. And especially right now where you're just, you know, everything feels super fractured, very fraught right now. And I think the idea of an optimistic Superman is lovely. It makes me think back to the early days of the MCU. A reason that I liked it and a reason that I heard a lot from other film fans was like, oh, it's a superhero movie that has jokes, that has color. Right. <laughs> I yeah. think that's not just like sepia, Chris Nolan, Batman, you know, it, a little, the tone was different. And now I feel like the MCU has gotten at least like visually more dark and CGI and kind of muddled and DC might come along and take that, take the place that Marvel used to have. Well, that's got to be what, that's what they're aiming for. So I think that's explicitly what they're aiming for. And so, you know, that's exciting. So I'm allowing myself to be cautiously excited about all of this. Frankly, I think it's a pretty great slate. Another quote that I want to bring up from their overall talk, which is that Gunn and Safran really prioritized writers. And basically they said, hey, people talk about there being superhero fatigue. We don't think there's superhero fatigue. We think there's bad movie fatigue because these movies get dated. They get pushed into production before the script is finished. There's no third act. And so basically you're writing the third act while the movie is being filmed and it just ends up being people punching each other at the end in the same old like big world engine. So Superman has a date because it has a script. And the next four movies I'll mention do not have dates because the scripts are not finished. And according to those guys, what's going to happen is when the script is finished and it's approved, the movie will get a date and they'll move forward. We'll see if they can follow through on that because that is not standard business practice. Anyway, the next movie is called The Authority. And The Authority is actually the one I know the least about. The Authority is interesting because, so there've been some small publishing labels that DC has acquired over the years. One of them is a label called Wildstorm. And Wildstorm is basically being folded into the movie, the DC movie continuity. So The Authority is, I think if you were to think of like a more pessimistic superhero team, maybe something that fits into what DC was doing in its last incarnation. That's kind of where the authority is. It's basically an ends justify the means team. I mean, I know they have writers on this. I don't think they've even announced who those writers are. You know, we don't know who's going to direct. We don't know who's going to star. So that's all TBD. The next movie is called The Brave and the Bold, which if you know anything about sort of 
70s comics will be immediately sort of will hark back to an era. But for those who don't, this is going to be the new Batman. It sounds like a soap opera to me. I'm getting bold and beautiful vibes. It does. It does. Yeah. (laughs) The Brave and the Bold was a title that DC ran for a long time. And it was sometimes, if I'm remembering correctly, like there were a couple of things like this. There were World's Finest, which is kind of like Batman and Superman stories. Brave and the Bold was basically a Batman title. So this is going to introduce a new Batman. We do not know who will play Batman. To make things slightly complicated, Matt Reeves is going to continue to make, I believe, <laughs> two more movies with Robert Pattinson. Okay, that'll be separate. And the Joker movies will also be separate. And the Joker movies are also separate. So in the late 80s, DC launched a thing called Elseworlds, which was basically a way to say they're almost like, you know, weird what if stories. Like the first Elseworlds was called Gotham by Gaslight. And it's basically what if Batman tracked down Jack the Ripper? Like that's the, that's the thing. There's a notable one called Red Sun, which is what if Superman Superman was landed in Soviet Russia instead of landing in Kansas and was raised as a, you know, as a Soviet hero. So Elseworlds is those kinds of stories. They're like, what if things were different? And it's this. So we want to experiment with this, but we don't want to have to build it into any kind of continuity. Correct. Exactly. And so at their announcement, Gunn and Safran said explicitly that movies like the Matt Reeves Batman movies and Todd Phillips Joker movies will be Elseworlds movies, will be labeled as such, and that they will do some work to make it clear that they are, you know, hopefully good movies, but they're just not part of this central story that is being told in all of the other DC stuff. So Brave and the Bold, basically it's where Batman discovers that he has a son by Talia al Ghul, the son of Raza al Ghul. Talia al Ghul played by, oh my God, played by Marion Cotillard, Marianne Cotillard and, in, the, yeah. in Chris Nolan's last movie. So this is Damian Wayne is Batman's son. He's a jerk. <laughs> um, the movie will have Damian Wayne basically is Bruce Wayne realizing that Damian exists, that Damian is a problem. He is an assassin. And so Bruce Wayne is kind of like, can I fix this kid? And and sort of the, the central thing is like, is he capable of being a father? That's the brave and the bold. Again, no release date, no announced writing or directing team, no announced stars. We'll get it when we get it. I know you said we don't have release dates, but do we have release like quarters release? Like when is this starting? This starts with the Superman movie in July 2025. So Okay, that's the first. Okay. That is going to be the first one. The Superman movie is dated. None of the rest of these are dated. We don't know if they will release in this order. The next movie is Supergirl Woman of Tomorrow, based on a comic series of the same name, relatively recent, more specifically described by Gunn as a huge sci-fi epic. The idea here is Superman escaped Krypton as it was about to be destroyed. Supergirl did not and basically grew up into her teen years in an incredibly difficult environment where the new Superman movie looks like it is going to be an optimistic thing. This does not look like that. Based on the description, that's the fourth of five films that was announced. And the fifth movie, and this is the one that you might be into, is Swamp Thing, which is interesting because Swamp Thing has been discussed as being a thing that DC wants to do for quite a while. There was a TV show recently, which didn't make a lot of waves. Gunn's suggestion was that this Swamp Thing movie will be based, and he did not say this will be based on this, but he has tweeted some like images of comics. And he's like, this is what we're inspired by. And the thing that he threw out for Swamp Thing was Alan Moore's classic run from the early 80s on Swamp Thing, which redefined the Swamp Thing character, ultimately led to things such as Sandman, ultimately led to things like the Vertigo imprint from DC, which was the mature readers imprint that did very well for DC beginning in the 90s. Swamp Thing is a horror story. I mean, it's a gothic horror story. It's the Alan Moore comics are some of the best comics that DC Comics ever published. You know, Swamp Thing has never really worked on film before. So can they do it? Man, I hope so, because I love the character. I love those comics. Another thing that Gunn said as they were introducing all this stuff is, hey, like if you're going to say you're doing these movies in different genres, they have to actually be those genres. You can't just kind of like wear a costume and say that it's this, but it's still really just the same movie. 
which is big talk. One of DC's big problems in the past has been follow through and they've had a lot of ideas and they haven't been able to push it forward. Can these guys push it forward? I don't know. It depends to a large extent on how much they can convince their corporate parents to believe in them. And, you know, do they have the steady hand to keep this going long enough to really get it spinning? But Swamp Thing with James Gunn, who is, as we've discussed, originally a genre and horror guy, at least behind this as a producer, you know, can they do an actual Swamp Thing horror movie? It would be so cool if they did. I'd like to believe they can. I believe they want to. Will they actually do it? We'll see. I mean, uh, there's a lot of stuff in the air right now with the uh, Warner Brothers and Discovery and streaming and this and that. And it, it sound, I mean, I, I get the impression that people kind of within the company maybe don't even necessarily know what's going to happen in the next year or two, no, never mind don't. like 10. I mean, we'll see. You know, later this year, they're going to launch their new product, which is the combined HBO Max and Discovery Plus service. That project does not even have a name. At this point, you know, that project behind the scenes is coming together. It is the priority there. And, you know, I think we're going to see that before the middle of the year. There are going to be, you know, at least four or five live action series that are on HBO Max. So, yeah, it's a lot. And it probably sounds like a whole lot if you don't know all of the, you know, if you're not familiar with these comics. So the real takeaway is five new movies. Two of them are oriented around characters that you know, Batman and Superman. One is oriented around Supergirl, then there's Swamp Thing, and then there's The Authority, which is sort of probably the dark horse of them. Based on the understanding that everyone has, the projects that are listed as movies, Superman Legacy, The Authority, Brave and the Bold, Supergirl, Woman of Tomorrow, and Swamp Thing, those are theatrical releases. Those are not streaming movies. Those are theatrical releases. So that's five theatrical DC movies, probably by, you know, let's be optimistic and say by 2027, maybe even 26. To shift gears for a moment, I want to talk about my personal favorite superhero, Channing Tatum's abs in the Magic Mike films. How'd you like that segue? The third one of which comes out this weekend. Coming out this weekend, we have Magic Mike's Last Dance from Warner Brothers Pictures, a film that was initially going to debut on HBO Max. Now it is coming out instead in theaters, and we're predicting uh, $16 million or higher for its opening weekend. And then also out in theaters and leading us, Russ, to our, uh, our feature segment this weekend, the 25-year anniversary re-release of Titanic. And I'm, aside from anything about like the movie itself or the quality of the movie or the James Cameron of it all, da-da-da-da-da, you know, I'm excited to see how this shapes out because if you look at like worldwide box office grosses, Avatar The Way of Water is really creeping up on Titanic. It's about to pass it. So I'd be interested to see if Titanic can put a little more room in between the two. And But yeah, we've had a lot of movement in the top 10 over the past few weeks. So this might yeah. Uh, yeah. give we'll us some it. more. Well, uh, Russ, thanks so much for exp- explaining all <laughs> that. To- I hope I, I probably made it more confusing. And we are back here on the Box Office Podcast with Russ Fisher, Editorial Director of the Box Office Studios, a division of our company that provides editorial services for movie theaters. Russ, welcome back. This is our Valentine's Day weekend feature segment. It's a theme segment, right? Because we've got Paramount's re-release of Titanic to look forward to. A lot of movies to talk about. Where were you in life in 1997 as we go over the top 10 movies of this year. 1997, I was living in Boston, or actually I I lived in Somerville. I lived right down the street from the Somerville Theater, which is where I saw a bunch of the movies that we'll be talking about. I was working on movies and commercials. I was doing my best to break into that business and I was ultimately successful. But at the time, like there are a couple of big 1997 movies that I had tried to get jobs on and failed. (laughs) Movies such as Amistad and Goodwill Hunting. I tried to work on both of those, but didn't know enough people, didn't get there. It's okay. Not upset about it. But I was doing a lot of that. So I, you know, I saw a bunch of stuff theatrically, but I was also working a lot. And so If I was working on set, I was often doing like six day weeks and they could be really, really long days. So there'd be stretches where I didn't see things. I was also 25. So 
there are a bunch of, I think there are movies that are really held dear to the hearts of a generation younger than me that I didn't see because I was like, this is not a movie. I'm that generation younger, Russ. I was 12 years old living in Sao Paulo, Brazil at the time. I actually counted. I saw 45 out of the 50 highest grossing movies of 1997. Most of them theatrically. This is like prime movie going age for me. In Latin America, when you're this age, your parents can't really drop you off unsupervised in too many places, especially in a place like Sao Paulo. So I went to the shopping malls of Sao Paulo very, very often and caught most of these movies. Uh, let's start with number 10 in 1997, Russ. This was one of the most anticipated releases of the year. Pierce Brosnan is back as James Bond in Tomorrow Never Dies. The film opens on December 19th to $25 million, a big, big number at the time, ends up running to $125 million well into 1998. This is the follow-up to GoldenEye, which really relaunched, revitalized the franchise in 95. I know you're not a big James Bond fan. We'll preface this with that. So how did you see this? How did you go into Tomorrow Never Dies? I mean, I'd seen GoldenEye. I loved it. GoldenEye really worked for me. I know I saw this. I couldn't tell you a thing about it. I mean, I having Michelle Yeoh in it was certainly a draw at this point. I'd seen a lot of Hong Kong movies already. Of course, 1997 is also the year of the handover of Hong Kong from the British Empire back to China. Huge turning point in that film industry, like Hong Kong cinema changed. And you had already seen kind of an exodus of Hong Kong talent and filmmakers coming to the United States. Talk about another one of those in this podcast in just a few minutes. You know, Michelle Yeoh was making her foray into, you know, American movies. And so that was awesome to see. But yeah, I literally, I couldn't tell you what this movie is about. I don't think I could tell you a single set piece from it. I don't think I could even tell you the cold open. And I've probably tried to watch it subsequently, but it almost certainly is the same thing that happens to me when I try to watch Bond movies, which is I enjoy the cold open. And then over the next 20 minutes, I get steadily more disengaged until I forget that I'm even watching the movie and I just wander off somewhere into my house to do something else. So, yeah. I think I enjoyed it, but that's, <laughs> you, uh, you know, clearly it didn't really stick with me. In 1997, when we talk about young audiences, the video game, the GoldenEye, was still very much a huge, huge turning point, a huge, huge talking point in, in the culture. So we were still engaging with this new iteration of James Bond. There's a massive popularity with the video re-release in home entertainment of a lot of that James Bond library. Tomorrow Never Dies, I think, came in with a lot of potential to build on that massive cultural impact that GoldenEye had. I'm not sure it got there. And after that, the Pierce Brosnan era just doesn't exactly work as well ever again. I think that the first misstep is Tomorrow Never Dies. Let's go to number nine here. That's actually one of the five that I didn't see in the top 50 movies, highest grossing movies of 1997. My Best Friend's Wedding, uh, romantic comedy. The selling point here is Julia Roberts is back. Julia Roberts is a star. And that really did, you know, play out. $127 million in its theatrical run after being released in the summer of 1997. I'm not the right demographic when this movie comes out, but you probably knew people who were. What was the impact of this movie? It was big, you know, it was, I'm trying to think of what to compare it to at this point, but yeah, I mean, everybody kind of saw it. It was one of those movies that it had such a broad appeal that, you know, like you're talking about, it was a good date movie. It is a very pleasant comedy. I haven't seen it in a long time. I saw it at the time in part because of Rupert Everett. Because a couple of years earlier, Rupert Everett had been in a truly bizarre Italian horror comedy called Cemetery Man. I think and you're the so only guy that wants to see this movie for this reason, by the way. It's you. Probably, you're, you're the one. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And I was like, oh, yeah, Rupert Everett loved him in that movie. Sure, I'll go see this thing. And yeah, you know, it's a 
like my best friend's wedding to me is, you know, we often talk about like the kinds of movies they don't make anymore. And a version of this movie now would just end up on Netflix, but nobody really makes these movies with this kind of polish, you know, it's like, it's not even about it being a perfect movie. It's just very competently professionally made and it, you know, and as a result, it, it works even if it's not great, you know, and that level of filmmaking, especially for kind of like a small to mid budget romantic comedy has really changed. It looks like a studio picture. Yeah. I mean, it's an old school studio picture and it's comforting in that way, you know? This is wild, and I forgot this happened, to be completely honest, though I did see it in this re-release. Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope, an expanded, extended, with deleted scenes special edition released theatrically in January of 1997. I was living in Mexico at the time, and this was massive. For a 12-year-old. I mean, this was big, big. I remember the concession stand at the Cinemark had special toys and a special combo meal. I went in there after spending like all my allowance on all the little toys and concessions. (laughs) This was huge. And this really, I think, engaged me on the Star Wars franchise at the perfect time before the prequels were released. You probably knew a lot more. You have a bigger history with Star Wars, Russ. Obviously, you're older than I am in this in this situation. You're coming in with a background. How did you take this re-release? Did it seem like a money grab? Was it exciting? Yeah, I was there immediately for this and for all of the re-releases of the original trilogy. I didn't really like the special edition stuff. Yeah. Prior to seeing Star Wars, I was like, okay, cool. Yeah, let's see what happens here. And then a bunch of it, I just thought it looked kind of bad and didn't look like it belonged in the movie. And that opinion has kind of calcified for me over time. Like, I'd rather see the mistakes and the pasted together aspect, the like, this is barely holding together part of Star Wars is much more appealing to me than the digitally polished redo of Star Wars. But yeah, I saw this, you know, I understood that it was just a big commercial to get you hyped for episode one. I was hyped for episode one. I wanted to see that in a big way. Yeah, I think as you mentioned, this was a commercial for a re-release. This was a commercial for the prequel in 1999, and it was an extremely effective commercial. Folks my age, this was the first opportunity we had to see it on the big screen. But I would also agree with you that a lot of that B-movie charm of my first engagement with Star Wars on VHS was gone. It's been progressively lost over the years every time these movies get a new polish, which seems like they get a new polish every eight months. And yeah, I think for me, the Star Wars I like to think about is the one that looks like it was, you know, the sets are just hanging on for dear life you know, as as you're watching the movie. This was the first step to a Star Wars that I ended up growing up not liking. This is probably the division point, right? So it's interesting that we talk about one of the biggest studio movies of all time, even a 20 anniversary re-release coming out and being the number eight title of 1997, because it just gets narrowly beaten at the box office with a number seven title, a movie that it's fair to say nobody saw coming, a movie that you just mentioned you tried very hard to get on the set and get some uh, crew experience here. Goodwill Hunting, the Gus Van Sant title written by Ben Affleck and Matt Damon, two actors that had you know decently okay careers so far. They take the Sylvester Stallone Rocky approach of writing their own thing and saying we're going to star in it. They end up with the Weinsteins at Merrimax, at the time a place where these sort of movies would get financed, made, and marketed theatrically. It ends up being the number seven movie of that year. We mentioned this when we talked about My Best Friend's Wedding. That model, I'm not sure, exists anymore. Something like Goodwill Hunting today probably gets lost in a streaming algorithm for 13 people to see and doesn't get marketed at all. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, Goodwill Hunting, I think the presence of it in the theatrical market and its success are in part predicated on that 
Miramax Oscar machine. You know, Harvey Weinstein knew that this movie could be an awards goldmine, and indeed it was, and pushed for its release and marketed it, you know, with that in mind. And so this movie is sort of representative of a completely different exhibition ecosystem, right? Like you say, now it would probably end up on streaming. The performances are great. You've got this really terrific Robin Williams role, you know, without, I don't, I don't think there's a whole lot of disagreement that it's one of his best performances. It's one of his most effective. Yeah. It's nice to see that this movie continues to hold on. It's great that it did as well as it did at the time. You know, it's funny that it beat Star Wars, but you know, we look at Star Wars where it exists now and not where it existed in 1997, which was that Star Wars was kind of off the map for a lot of people you know, in 97, like this was a, you know, they re-released three movies as a commercial for the prequels. And it's like, they did that for a reason. Like Star Wars was not a huge thing at the time. There weren't TV shows. There weren't toys on the shelves prior to 97. They made new stuff for these re-releases, but you know, there wasn't a thing to get kids into it. There were some video games and there were novels, but those were certainly aimed at what was then like kind of a niche audience. So the idea that Goodwill Hunting beat out something like Star Wars in 1997 isn't inconceivable, but it's still pretty cool that it happened, right? Yeah, and what's also interesting here is that Goodwill Hunting isn't the only adult-oriented film that ends up breaking into the top 10 that year. The next movie on the list here is a movie that was very well received at the time. To be totally honest with you, Russ, I forgot about this movie until I saw this list. Number six on the list, as good as it gets with Jack Nicholson and help me out. Greg Kinnear is in it. Helen Hunt, <laughs> yeah, I think. I mean, it's, I kind of remember. Yeah, this. it's Jack Nicholson, Helly Hunt, Greg Kinnear, Cuba Gooding Jr. Yeah, James L. Brooks movie. And yeah, it's like this again, you know, is kind of in the same different movie from My Best Friend's Wedding, but it is, yeah, that same sort of thing of like, oh, a stu- mid-sized studio picture that connects with an audience, probably a bigger audience than anyone really expected. But, you know, Jack Nicholson is still Jack Nicholson yeah. at this point. But it's at the point where like he starts becoming a gimmick a little bit and his career choices, kind of like De Niro, actually, not too far from here. I think De Niro becomes a gimmick in movies like Analyze This and ends up doing the De Niro thing. Nicholson kind of falls into that trap during this time with a movie like this. I think even though the movie works, the movies that follow that Nicholson does his Nicholson shtick don't work. Right. I agree with that. Absolutely. I don't think I would argue there. But yeah, it's, you know, and I mean, it's like you've got Helen Hunt, who was in Twister the year before. Twister's a massive movie, you know, and so that's a big deal. Mad About You is on TV. She's in Mad About You. Like that's been running for like five years when this comes out. So, you know, like Helen Hunt is an entrenched, she's a star. She is someone who people are very familiar with. And I think, you know, that helps entice that audience that is like, oh, you know, let's just go see a movie. And as good as it gets is one of those prime like choices for let's go see a movie, you know, and it's in a way that would not be the case now. Now this would be like a specialty release from Focus or something. <laughs> and yeah. You know, and it was just a completely different landscape at the time. Yeah, absolutely. But it's it's good to see this movie to have performed the way it did uh, upon release on December 23rd. There's, I think, about a handful of December titles here in the top 10 in a very competitive Christmas corridor that all found an audience and all became hits. Again, a very different world from the let's release one movie every six weeks and see what happens sort of model that we're trying to fight our way through here in the post-COVID stage. And as we talk about stars, we do have to mention this aspect of Air Force One that lands on the number five spot in 1997. This was back when Harrison Ford was maybe wrapping up his days of opening up big studio blockbusters on his own. He delivers on Air Force One, which is probably one of the best revered angry dad movies. It's not a dad movie. It's an angry dad movie. You know, kind of like Gran Torino is an angry dad movie. Air Force One, very much an angry dad film. 
yeah, he did a few other things that certainly did well and that had cultural presence, but they weren't, you know, something on the lines of Air Force One or The Fugitive or any of those. There's nothing that was that big. So, yeah, and I think Crystal Skull would probably be the next one. But like you say, like that's an Indiana Jones movie. I think more than it is a Harrison Ford movie, but of course, like you put the two of them together, you know, if they had recast, if they had recast Indiana Jones for Crystal Skull, would it have performed the same way? It's like you say it's an Indiana Jones movie, but that is synonymous with Harrison Ford. So yeah, there's a whole thing there, but uh, yeah, you know, I think in terms of Harrison Ford as like this kind of tent pole action hero you know, guy, Air Force One is really the last of a kind. And the thing is, Harrison Ford wasn't ever really that, I think, to begin with. Like the fact that Harrison Ford was ever perceived as that is almost like just kind of a coincidence (laughs) because he did a couple of those movies in a row. But like, I don't think he wanted that. And I don't think it fits well with him. You know, he certainly isn't in the template of like the action heroes of the 80s and 90s. It's a lot like the stardom that Robert Redford had generations likely before him, if it's fair to say. I know they're kind of contemporary, but the Redford star path, I think, is similar in that they're not that guy. They don't want to be that guy, but they'll make that movie once in a while, right? Yeah, totally. Yeah. You know, in the same way that Redford does some big movies and then he does Jeremiah Johnson and, you know, Harrison Ford does Mosquito Coast. It's like, it is kind of the, yeah. I mean, there's a thing there. I think Harrison Ford, Harrison Ford clearly likes to do comedy. He's got working girl. He's got other comedies on his resume and in comedies that sometimes really work, but uh, yeah. And he's an interesting star. There's no other star quite like Harrison Ford. And the fact that Air Force One represents sort of a plateau of his of one certain phase of his career is intriguing but i think it doesn't really define Mm. him you know if you look at everything that he's done as a whole and as we talk about the star aspect of movies probably the only interesting thing that we could say about the number four movie released in 1997 liar liar starring jim carrey is that It's the last horribly obnoxious Jim Carrey movie that we get in this run of horribly obnoxious movies that he makes and is getting totally overpaid for. After this, he starts making some pretty interesting decisions with his career. But yeah, Liar Liar is very much in the latter stage of, come on, this guy? Uh, But it works. I mean, obviously, audiences all over North America couldn't get enough of, I don't know, him yelling and making funny faces. I don't think these movies age well. It's funny, but it's, you know, it's like you got to like Jim Carrey. And if you're on the fence or or whatever, then yeah, it's not going to be the movie that sells you. But that said, you know, to go from this to the Truman yeah, yeah. Show. A That's year what later. I mean. I mean, after this, yeah. he does some really interesting decisions with his career, not the least of which is uh, the Truman Show that followed in 99 with Man on the Moon, this Milos Forman biopic of the comedian Andy Kaufman. And after that, you know, he, he'll throw some things in there that at least make Jim Carrey interesting and compelling as an actor. And we've talked about the number three title here on the list already in a prior episode, Russ, so we won't talk too much about it now. It's The Lost World, Jurassic Park, the sequel to Steven Spielberg's Jurassic Park. Spielberg's back. It's the highest opening weekend of any movie released in 1997 with a massive $72 million opening frame. Tops out at $229 million that year. But if you can find three people that like this movie, <laughs> you know, I don't know. I'll give them an award. Because, yeah, it's of those sequels, maybe the worst one. And that's saying something. Yeah, it's arguably, yeah, yes and yes. We don't need to belabor it. I think we've made our feelings clear about this movie and this series before. But I don't think there's a lot of argument that this is the nadir of the Jurassic World series or the Jurassic Park plus Jurassic World series. I still haven't seen Dominion, so I don't know. But certainly of the original three movies, this is by far the worst one. But it's got that Jurassic Park name on it, so people showed up. Yeah, 
And that's the best thing we can say about it. May it rest in peace. I hope that's the last time we talk about The Lost World, Jurassic Park, on this podcast. (laughs) Um, And number two, this is important. We talk about stars. We talk about people that can open movies. We talk about July 4th weekend in 1997. Will Smith, arguably neck and neck, maybe with Jim Carrey. I think by this point, Will Smith is a bigger star than Jim Carrey. Opens Men in Black. To $51 million, the second highest opening weekend of that year. The movie tops out at $250 million. This movie was fun. This movie was exciting. I think Will Smith is paired fantastically well with a deadpan Tommy Lee Jones. I was probably the best age to see this, you know, a year removed from Independence Day. You're a little older when you catch this. Did you catch it, first of all? Because this probably must have been everywhere that summer. Absolutely caught it. Probably saw it opening weekend, if not. Yeah, I don't whether or not I saw it on the day. Saw it, loved it, have seen it many times before. Like the polar opposite of <laughs> The Lost World. Just, you know, a big effects-based movie that works because, as you say, that casting is perfect. You know, Barry Sonnenfeld is, you know, really firing on all cylinders. He's, you know, it's like he's, you know, the guy has worked as a cinematographer, filmed a bunch of the early Coen Brothers movies, makes the transition into directing, and just like really understands how to put action and comedy together with effects. Super fun movie. Yeah, I'm a fan. And it's also a time when sci fi is in a very varied state here in the late 90s. Before we get into the number one movie of the year, Titanic, another movie we've already spoken about in a prior episode, let's use this as a transition point to some of the other movies that didn't break into the top 10, but were influential in one way or another in the industry. Starting with sci-fi, talking about how Men in Black is the high point uh, in the market for sci-fi performing commercially. There are some sci-fi movies released this year that are compelling, but maybe not super successful at the box office. Let's start with The Fifth Element. This is Luc Besson arriving to the United States with a different, more accessible movie. Of course, he made The Professional, the movie that gave us Natalie Portman's career, a movie that I think we're all thankful for. I love The Professional. But The Professional isn't the most accessible movie. The Fifth Element is accessible in a different way, but it's not as accessible as, say, A Men in Black. Fifth Element brings in a fairly good performance that same year from Bruce Willis as well. What did you like about it? What didn't you connect with when this came out? I love the scope of it. I love the like absolutely bonkers, go-for-broke like over the top aspect of the visual design. I think that it, you know, the fifth element has this thing of like these Mobius and other artists who are illustrating sci-fi in the seventies and eighties. And like, there's just nothing that looks like this movie. It's crazy how densely built it is and how thoroughly imagined it is and that's fantastic what i don't like in the fifth element is the performances that seem like they're trying to match that over the top level of design and so there's a lot of stuff in the fifth element that i find to be kind of grating and just like it's just too much it's like it's an overload that doesn't work for me i think like you there are some elements where the performances try to upstage the setting and that doesn't always work a very different tone we could say the starkly opposite tone is contact a movie that when it came out i was 12 i found boring and i never rewatched. and that's probably unfair because i was 12 it probably wasn't a movie for 12 year old boys you were older you actually like this one should i give this a shot absolutely yeah you should watch contact again Contact is, I liked Contact when it was out, and I like it more each time I see it. In part because it just, it's not playing by an obvious formula or playbook. And it has some really beautifully imagined stuff in it. The climax of the movie is great. And yeah, I think Contact is a really beautiful movie. And it's ambitious in a way that is unlike 
the ambition of Fifth Element, where Fifth Element just wants to put... Fifth Element is maximalist. And Contact is not. Contact is very controlled. But Contact is not a small movie. Like Contact, I think, is one of the more epic sci-fi movies ever made. And I think it deserves to be recognized as an achievement in that respect. So yeah, I would say you should really give Contact another look. And talking about sci-fi movies from 1997 that were able to sustain a critical reappreciation, we've got Starship Troopers, one of my favorite movies that came out that year. Before we were recording, Russ and I were sharing stories on remembering, like vividly remembering going to see Starship Troopers in the theater. What was your experience like, Russ? And I still love it now. I appreciate it even more now than I did then. I think people had trouble with it as like a really bleak satire. To me, it was always like, you know, what if you put 90210 in space and then they all died? <laughs> Which doesn't sound very uplifting, but I know I think it's a great movie. And going on these 1997 titles that were part of these overall trends in theaters, we had a lot of teen horror movies coming out during this era. There are two here that stand out the most, I think. Scream 2, the sequel to the movie that basically kicked all this off in 1996. Scream 2 comes out in the Christmas Corridor a year later. I mean, really, really rushed into production, rushed into production after the script leaked and got basically rewritten from scratch. A movie that has great set pieces, but I'm not sure works all the way. But it was I Know What You Did Last Summer, which was released actually during the summer of 1997, that I think connected more with the sort of teen MTV generation horror movies that we'd see in the coming years. The final big sort of weird trend that happened in 1997, I think is like a trio of years where we have the natural disaster movie. I think Twister launches that in 1996. In 97, we don't have one. We have two Volcano movies. Did you see either of them, either Volcano or Dante's Peak? You know, I I want to say I saw both of them. It felt like you kind of needed to choose, right? Like, were you a Volcano fan or were you a Dante's Peak fan? Which one were you? What did you go with? I don't think I really cared for either one of them. Yeah, I don't have... I want to say I saw both, but I'd be lying if I told you I had like concrete opinions or or solid memories of either of those movies. It seems kind of silly in hindsight that this happened. Two movies of this this year. And then in 98, we end up having two giant asteroid hitting the Earth movies with Deep Impact and Armageddon. It was weird. I, I don't know how that happened. And we're about to go into, before we talk about the number one movie of 1997, very quickly or as quickly as we feel like going. The movies that both Russ and I really liked as moviegoers, these aren't movies that hit the top 10 chart. These aren't movies that I think were ever intended to be box office hits, but they're relevant releases. 1997 was a really, really good year for new releases. Let's start with our favorites and maybe mention some others here, Russ. I know one of your favorites, at least one of your go-to movies is LA Confidential. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I got really into James Elroy novels right around the time this came out. You know, I had already read the book when the movie came out. I was super excited to see the movie and they're massively different. And I loved that. I think the movie, you know, it's a great cast. Guy Pierce, Russell Crowe, Kim Basinger, you know, a whole roster of fantastic talent. And it's just like, it's a movie that moves. It's twisty. It's still fun to watch. I watch it once a year easily. It's a great LA movie. You know, it's fantastic. Uh, that's on my list as well. And, and I think we shared my favorite movie of 1997, David Lynch's take on Vertigo, Lost Highway. For me, maybe among my five, six favorite movies of all time. I mean, I adore this thing. I probably see it once every 18 months. It's not an easy movie to rewatch. I mentioned it's a take on Vertigo in a way that a lot of movies or good movies that I end up liking are a take on Vertigo. It's definitely a movie that David Lynch is processing through a lot of the themes that we saw happen during the O.J. Simpson trial. He's said as much in, in several interviews and makes a very good companion piece with uh, Mulholland Drive, another one of my all-time favorite movies that comes several years later. 
This, along with Mulholland Drive, I think is Lynch at his best period. Did you see this in theaters? Because I didn't get the Lynch, understandably, until I was in my 20s. You were in your 20s when this movie comes out. What was your experience watching Lost Highway? Uh, Wrapped. (laughs) Just totally pulled in. But I loved it. Saw it multiple times in theaters. You know, bought all the magazines that had it on the cover. I still go back to the American Cinematographer feature article on Lost Highway. Talk a lot about how they did some of the stuff in the movie and used very simple techniques in a way to create some of the kind of otherworldly stuff in there. Yeah, huge fan. Love it. And totally very, very different, but still a movie that I think is dear to our hearts that we like to rewatch a lot. John Woo's Face Off. Man, I love watching Face Off. I watched this so many times on video after it came out. Yeah, I mean, Face Off is, I think at the time Face Off was a little dismissed, you know, it was John Woo's third American movie. You know, he was probably the first really big name Hong Kong talent to bounce over to the United States. You know, he did the movie Hard Target with Jean-Claude Van Damme. He did Broken Arrow, sort of a military-ish action thriller with Christian Slater and John Travolta. And then, you know, he reunites with Travolta and pulls in Nick Cage for Face Off. And, you know, this is one of those absolutely crazy pants nick cage performances one of two in 1997 don't forget con air also released in 1997 although if you had me yeah between the two it's face off every day of the week oh it's absolutely face off yeah but it's like i think just totally idiot there's not another movie like face off you know there's nothing like it and at this point i think face off has earned you know a reappraisal more than once or twice because it's like you know what it's no it doesn't look like the performances don't play like you expect performances in this kind of movie to play visually it doesn't necessarily look or behave like you would expect it to because it's a john woo movie but great like that's exactly why it's enjoyable because it is it's unlike anything else and it's crazy it's operatically almost cartoonishly over the top and it's all the better because of it and it just narrowly misses the top 10 of movies released in 1997 and then up in 11th place but still outgrossing batman and robin for example so a movie like face off as weird and out of place as it was still made more money than a pg-13 batman movie starring the cute guy from er so You know, we have to give it some credit. Yeah, I think at the time, critics had a little bit of reticence accepting it for what it was, uh, even though audiences clearly did come out to see this movie. The rest of the movies here didn't have that sort of box office success, but I still think are part of filmographies from filmmakers that we both are really into. At least I'm going to say I'm really into Olivier Asayas. I don't know if if you are, I have to admit it, but Irma Vep, his uh, take... Um, the silent French serial from the 1920s. That comes out this year. We're talking about Hong Kong actors, Maggie Chung being a star in this movie. A fantastic, fantastic movie. I think one of the best movies about making movies that I've ever seen. I don't know if you saw the HBO serial remake that Asayas ends up revisiting came out last year. I think among the best three TV shows I've ever seen. Asayas and Irma Vep has just always been a good combination for me. Did you remember watching this? Because I didn't get this until really like my late 20s. I didn't get to this until way, 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 way after 97. It's an awesome yeah. movie. I agree. I agree with everything you said. You know, it is a fantastic movie about filmmaking. It's got a great performance from Maggie Chung. Everybody in the movie is good. I love it. I haven't seen the TV show. I've heard very good things about it. And it's one of those that I think I just need to, I need to, block off the time so I can sit down and watch it because I know I'm sure I'll like it. Other people who, you know, know the original movie and some who don't have echoed your comments. But yeah, you know, not a movie that made a major mark on most audiences at the time. Wasn't the easiest movie to see, but you know, yeah, fantastic. And for a long time, honestly, it was kind of out of circulation. It's on, I think there's a Criterion disc of it now. I think I might have seen it in repertory when I moved to New York in the early 2010s. But yeah, because of this Criterion re-release, I resaw it within the last year. Yeah, there was, you know, probably nearly 20 years where Irma Vep was 
relatively difficult to see. It just didn't show up in places. And so it's nice that it's that it's had kind of a, a renaissance because it deserves it. And as we're talking about filmmakers that made films in 97 that didn't make a ton of money, but ended up making films that opened up a career that was very compelling, we do have to talk about P.T. Anderson and what is maybe his best movie. He's made a lot of good movies, but the most accessible, the funnest, and the one I rewatch most often is the one he released in 97, Boogie Nights. This was a movie that I wasn't allowed to go see saw it anyway saw it anyway snuck in it was awesome it was great there's nudity in it i was 12 but it was also a good movie boogie nights is really the beginning of paul anderson as one of those filmmakers whose movies you have to see i think boogie nights kind of surprised everybody but you know i think a lot of people who saw it as soon as you get that wild kind of like one take shot through the pool and going into the house it was like oh my god you know, you've got amazing cast in it. You know, you've got your little weird Burt Reynolds resurgence in there. And yeah, you know, Boogie Nights was not a blockbuster by any means, very much kind of a niche independent movie at the time. But then I think also really benefited a couple of years later from the launch of DVD. That new wave of home video, I think, helped push a movie like Boogie Nights up into the forefront of, you know, the watch list for a whole younger generation of film goers. So yeah, that's, you know, it's not Anderson's first movie clearly, but it is the movie that really set him up to be one of the dominant filmmakers on, you know, in the American independent scene for, you know, decades to come. A great ensemble cast. And we have to mention it, a star making role for Mark Wahlberg, who before this had a music career, had a modeling career. He did an interesting movie with Reese Witherspoon, Fear, playing a jealous boyfriend. You know, a nice little like genre teen movie in the mid nineties. Nice, yeah. <laughs> but this movie, you watch Mark Wahlberg and you realize, oh, he's an actor now. Jackie Brown is an interesting title here. You mentioned right before we started recording, Russ. This is your favorite Tarantino movie, which is curious. I don't think most people would say that. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, uh, it is, I think, my favorite Tarantino movie. I'm not necessarily going to say it's his best, but it is my favorite. I think Jackie Brown had a tough time because it wasn't Pulp Fiction, you know? Like, after Pulp Fiction, that movie set a standard for people. It's a super popular movie because it's great, and it's very, very easy to watch. Jackie Brown is not Pulp Fiction. It's a very different kind of movie. It's a more serious movie. It's a quieter movie. And so I think there's an audience that doesn't like Jackie Brown still just because they wanted Pulp Fiction again. I think you nailed it there. And I think that's by design. I think Tarantino has openly mentioned that in several interviews. If you saw Reservoir Dogs, you were excited. I was excited when I saw Reservoir Dogs. Totally, then, you get the, then you get the Pulp Fiction. You're like, oh my God, this is a lot like Reservoir Dogs. And it's fun and fresh. But more. Exactly, right? And then you get the Jackie Brown and you're like, oh man, he's going to do exploitation now. This is going to be fun. And it's an adaptation. It's not an original movie. He just plays it by the book. It's a very quiet movie in a sense, When we, especially when we talk about in relation to Tarantino. It's probably his most textbook quote-unquote movie that he's made so far in his career and there's a maturity to it there's a comfort to it and i think he knew he's spoken about this that there was no way he could compete with the hype and any version of more of pulp fiction than he made would have been disappointing would have been the wrong movie to make and he made a very mature decision in making jackie brown yeah it's one of those movies that deserves a rewatch and if you watch it cold Without that expectation of having it be a Tarantino movie, you'll get more out of it. Yeah. And I mean, it's still a Tarantino movie. Make no mistake. Like, it has all of the ticks and it's got all of the sort of indulgences that make a Tarantino movie. But it's a movie about getting old. You know, it's a movie about these two characters who realize that they don't want the world that they've lived in anymore. And they don't know what they're going to do next, and they don't know if they're going to be able to do a next thing. And I think it's really effective. You called it mature, and I think that's exactly what it is. I think it's really effective in that respect. And coming from a filmmaker who's still pretty young, 
I think it's all the more remarkable that he did this, you know, you know, after that, he went into much more cartoonish territory and, you know, went much bigger than Pulp Fiction over and over, obviously. Yeah, but we ended up getting those is... movies eventually that we wanted yeah. to watch after Pulp Fiction. But you end up getting this, like, quote unquote, late career movie right after Pulp Fiction. It's an anomaly yeah. in, in a very interesting way. Not too many filmmakers, I think, are self-aware enough to make that decision. And it was the right decision at the right time. Yeah, absolutely. So it's my go-to QT movie, and it's, yeah, certainly my favorite. And that wraps up all the 1997 movies that worked, that didn't work, that we liked. The number one movie, spoiler alert, we're not going to talk about Titanic that much. I know that was the draw. That's why you listen. <laughs> we ti- already as the lure. We've been waiting for Titanic. No, no, no. Like we, we already spoke about Titanic. Go back to the James Cameron episode. We talked everything we could about Titanic. Listen, we'll talk about a little bit. $600 million after being released in December of 1997. Cultural cornerstone launched absolutely jet-propelled careers for Kate Winslet, for Leonardo DiCaprio, talking point at the Oscars all of that year. Never doubt James Cameron. I'm just rattling the greatest hits here, Russ. Anything you want to add to just the massiveness of Titanic in 1997. It remains remarkable that it was as big as it was. You know, we talked about the sort of assumption that it might be a disaster, that it was going to live up to its name in all the wrong ways. And, you know, look, any movie that gets finished and is good is a miracle. There's so many things that can go wrong. There's so much stuff that has to line up perfectly. The coordination of hundreds, if not thousands of people to make a movie that's good. So for something like Titanic to work on the level that it does and to have the effect that it has on the people that saw it is remarkable. Like that's, it's crazy. And so, yeah, it remains a significant movie in every way. Yeah, significant enough to get a wide re-release for its 25th anniversary while another James Cameron movie is still making a crazy amount of money at the box office. That is the legacy of Titanic, probably among Cameron's filmography up there with the greatest, right? Like, it's not a movie that I enjoy rewatching as much as I enjoy rewatching Aliens or T2, but it is without a doubt at a global box office level, at a global movie going level, remains to be one of the most beloved titles, I think, of the last 25 years. Yeah, yeah, I agree completely. Well, thank you, Russ, for another marathon session here going over movies that came out over 20 years ago. We do this professionally. I know we can't believe it either. And don't ask our parents how we ended up pulling this off, but we did for a little while longer. On behalf of everyone here at Box Office Pro, thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next week with another episode of the Box Office Podcast produced by Box Office Pro in collaboration with Record Edit Podcast and the Box Office Company. Thanks again for your support. We'll talk to you again next week. Thank you.